90% of venture capital goes to straight white men when they only make up 30 or so percent of that in the United States. So that just didn't make any sense to me. Welcome to Joyful Sundays, a podcast delivering weekly insights, inspiration, and tools to live a more conscious, connected, and intentionally meaningful life. Join us as we go into the minds of some of the world's most inspiring leaders to discover the keys to unlocking your best self. In the midst of a global pandemic, there has never been a more important time to reflect on how we want to emerge, what we value, who we are at our cores, and how we want to reflect those North Star values in the lives we build post a global crisis. I'm your host, Jody Kovitz. The concept for this podcast really, for me, came out of a deep need to find joy and hope and be thinking about the future and creating a future that was filled with intentionality. And, you know, over time, from when the moment I created the concept of Joyful Sundays to now, the absolute deep inequalities in the U.S. and around the world have emerged and have been exposed through the pandemic. And the impact disproportionately to the most vulnerable populations you know, is something I've been thinking very deeply about. Of course, in the last few weeks, George Floyd's brutal death and the deaths of others, you know, has broken my heart and in fact delayed the launch of this podcast because it really just didn't feel right over the last few weeks in any way to put my voice out there. And I had recorded before George Floyd's death transpired this incredible conversation with Arlen Hamilton, who has been a friend of mine for several years, met through my having her speak at the first Move the Dial Global Summit in 2018. I was deeply inspired by her. We'll get into that a bit in the episode. And it really felt appropriate to launch highlighting Arlen's story as an incredible human being, full of resilience, tenacity, big, bold vision, a woman who's incredibly authentic and who is a Black woman. And to celebrate what I know she's inspired in so many people, including, and most importantly in this moment, uh, Black founders who are typically underrepresented and not believed in. And, you know, it really is about damn time, as she would say to recognize the talent and contributions of Black founders, of Black people, and to celebrate and invest in and believe in and support the scaling of the ideas. And for me, the key is, with an open heart, listening and continuing to push ourselves to go deeper, and that if we want to be part of the solution in working towards a future that is centered around equality, gender equality, racial equality, equality on 31 other dimensions of each of the intersections that make us who we are, it really is imperative that each of us look inside of ourselves and think deeply about what 
we need to do and what we can sustain as an ongoing marathon lifetime commitment. And we cannot allow systemic racism to go quietly unnamed or to be something that we talk about in the moment unchallenged. You know, we have to use our voices. We have to learn. We have to listen and we have to act. And as a white person of incredible privilege on many different dimensions, being cisgender and heterosexual and growing up middle class and being educated and certainly my whiteness have all lended privilege to me that have enabled me to have an easier time in the world. And I will be forever reflecting on what that means and how I can act in solidarity to share my privilege and flow power to those that certainly deserve it and have much to contribute to the world. On today's episode of Joyful Sundays, I want to talk about perseverance and resilience with the one and only Arlen Hamilton, founder and managing director of Backstage Capital. Arlen has an incredibly powerful story. She built a venture capital fund from the ground up, which she started while being homeless. Her boutique fund is dedicated to minimizing funding disparities in tech by investing in high potential founders who are people of color, women, and or LGBTQ+, with a dream to support entrepreneurs that are often overlooked. It is such a joy to have you on my show today, Arlen, to talk about resilience and perseverance. Welcome to Joyful Sundays. Thanks so much for having me, Jody. Pleasure to be on your show. So... We're going to get into your book and your origin story to start, and then I'm going to want to dig into how COVID-19 has impacted your thinking and perhaps opened your eyes to new opportunities coming out of this. But first, I'd love to ask you, how are you doing, Arlen? How's your wife? How's your mom? How are your loved ones, your team members? Doing well. I think March and April were much tougher than May has turned out to be, which is good that it's getting better. You know, this can wear on you for sure. For us, my wife, we've been isolated together for most of that time. And we keep saying to each other, I don't know if I could have done this with anybody else. What a gift, right? I mean, it really is. And normally you're traveling everywhere. So I imagine in some ways just having the time with her has been a gift. I try to definitely spend the good in this, but just the fact that she and I have always been very much so of the opinion that each person living and including each other should have autonomy and should live life to the fullest, whatever that means for the other person. And so we don't get in each other's way because we don't have that thing where we need to know what's going on in there. You know, like we're just so happy to see each other every day. We're being very intentional about not getting sick and we have a plan if one of us gets sick. And then my mother and my brother are both in Dallas. So I'm in LA. My mother's 71. So she made a decision really early to be self-isolated. She was going through some non-COVID related medical issues for the first two thirds of this time. So it was really taxing on her. But I think she too is coming out of it. And like May has been her month because she survived all of that. And she's feeling a little bit more herself, I think. I can tell when I talk to her. I'm so happy to hear that she's doing better. Just tell us a little bit about 
Backstage Capital and the life of Arlen Hamilton for listeners that don't know you. I mean, most people do, but pre-pandemic and sort of the work that you've been focused on and the impact you've had. And then I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, now and what you see next as we move into recovery for Backstage and yourself. So I'm the managing partner and founder of a venture fund called Backstage Capital. It's based in the United States. We also have an accelerator that we launched in 2019 that is in four cities, Los Angeles, Detroit, Philadelphia, and London. I'm 39 now in 2020, and I started it probably super early 30s, so maybe eight years ago. But really just coming from a completely different world, not having any financial background or any interest in venture capital for sure, but wanting to start a company and realizing as I was researching on starting a company, just how bad disparities were between the amount of capital that went into companies that were not led by white men. Not to say that every white man gets a check for being white and a guy, but... 90% of venture capital goes to straight white men when they only make up 30 or so percent of that in the United States. So that just didn't make any sense to me. When I understood that in that early part of wanting to start this company, I set out on a greater and a larger mission than just raising funding for myself. Because I said, you know, if I raise this, maybe I can raise it because I can hack the system. But what happens then? I mean, am I going to have trouble raising again because of the same reasons? And more importantly, where are the others going to be? Like, am I going to see myself reflected in the arena that I've just found my way into? None of it was appealing to me if the answer was no. So I said, well, let's see if we can shake up the system. And honestly, I can't lie and say that I I knew it was going to be like it is now, but I just set out to say these companies exist. These founders exist. They're really high value founders and companies and that we're overlooking them and and they're being overlooked. And maybe by investing in a hundred of those founders at a short amount of time by 2020, maybe I can get the attention over to them that they deserve. What has happened is that we've been able to invest in 130 companies across the country and now into Europe. We have been able to start the accelerator. We've had multiple companies in our portfolio go on to raise a quarter of a billion dollars. The last count we did for our portfolio It's much more than that because that was only about half of them reporting. I think the narrative in Silicon Valley and beyond has been tipped well, you've changed it just to reflect to you in terms of the impact. And I really went deep in reflecting on it when I was reading your book, sort of the beginning and what started as a seed that was a, a mission that you didn't know would have the impact it was, but that sort of seemed to just be such an authentic voice and passion for you that you really shifted the narrative in the US and globally, you know? So I think the power of what that sort of initial seed of your vision was has been exponential. And certainly I've seen the impact of Backstage Capital, even when you visited us here in Toronto, and sort of the impact of the droves of people that are inspired by you, motivated by you, see themselves and the work that you've done with your founders and what you've accomplished is truly remarkable. And I know you've been sort of scaling the operation aggressively and the message COVID, of course, as you know, has impacted Move the Dial, which most of our revenue was tied to an events and partnership sponsorship model for the for this year. We were in the process of actually trying to change the model to be more sustainable long-term using tech, but we're impacted and we completely paused operations. How is your team doing? And I know it's obviously difficult to navigate, but have there been any insights that have come out of this? We were kind of floating around in a, in a dinghy. <laughs> the wave just crashed on us. We were already working on just the lowest amount of resources for what we were trying to do. And we had already gone through two rounds of layoffs in 2019. 
And it was okay because this is what we would have been doing for years and hit after hit. We just keep going and we just recalibrate. We had gotten ourselves in the position for 2020 that we were going to be able to cover costs of our operations and serve our portfolio and serve the greater ecosystem by having the partnerships that we have had in place and then others that we were working on for our 12 city tour. So it was top of March. We were on the heels of a 12 city tour that we were almost certain would expand once we got into it because we were turning down cities left and right and trying to figure things out. Christy, my business partner, had just come back from maternity leave that same week. And Brittany, our head of deal flow, was going into maternity leave in June. So we were getting ready to like switch those things off with like the major people at our company. We still do, but we had these great partnerships with some Fortune 500 companies that were going to sponsor the tour. And then that would help us keep the lights on for at least a year as we figured out now we're going into our fifth year and we can probably raise this amount of funding. And then if we raise this amount of funding to invest, we'll get a management fee of this amount and that will cover us from now on. So we were like stepping stones. And within 72 hours in the first week of March... I was recording the audio version of the book in Austin. I recorded the first Monday and Tuesday of March. Wednesday, I recorded a half day. I took a flight back home to LA. And from that moment on, I have not left my home. And so in those 72 hours of that week, all of our touring, at first we moved it to virtual immediately because we were like the rest of the world. We didn't know what was going to happen, but maybe we can do it virtually. We took two weeks and made that work. We came to the conclusion like, wow, we can't even book people because no one knows where they're going to be. So we had to shelve the whole thing. I mean, I really feel your pain, like in a way that you and I can share it. We went yeah, through it. Yeah, you went through it. Yeah, everything. Summit, 75 events, like I get. Yeah. So we kept some really tried and true sponsors on and we are going to be working with them over the next couple of years to kind of work out the deal that we made in different ways. And they've just been amazing. And then for others, though, the pipeline. It's just gone. So not only did that happen, but the exact same time I lost about, I don't want to say how much, but it was in the six figures of speaker fee money for myself that was going to pay for me. But you know what? We went through a tough time. We had another layoff. We had two people who had been at the company the longest. They were in a position where they could leave because they wanted to start something new. And it was just very sad because it was premature. We all made the decisions together. And then it's just been a few of us. And we kicked it into high gear and we said, okay, let's do everything that we can to support the ecosystem. Let's get our founders set up. Let's get legal. Let's get accounting. Let's get make some connections I certainly can relate to that as well, having sort of planned a book tour myself this year that got canceled. How are you feeling about it? I found that your energy has been so positive and I'm super inspired by your resiliency. Of course, one of the topics in your book. Yeah, I I mean, I was ready for a six month tour that was going to extend. I think the hardest part is that you'll never know what it would have been. What I'm doing now is like I'm doing what I preach in the book itself, which is go back to basics. I say something like, you know, when things seem like they're lowest and they seem like you can't do anything else, get creative. And that's what we're doing. It's good timing as far as releasing it, just because so many people I think will benefit from the adversity. There was an option to push it to later to when I could be physically places. And I just thought, let's see what I'm made of and release it. And I've had a great time talking to people 
all over the world. I've been able to talk to multiple people that I would not have been able to talk to like this. I do miss the opportunity to do the signings and get people who were going to walk out and leave for lunch and bring them back into the room by just something that I say, you know, like I do miss that feeling. I think that would have driven a lot of sales, but I think this book is going to be so successful in its own way. And I couldn't be more proud of it and more excited to work on it. I love hearing that. And honestly, I can tell you, it was a great gift to me in this moment. And I feel so blessed to be able to tell you that. When I read even just the first chapter, like Food Stamps to Fast Company, there was something so powerful for me, Arlen, about the role that believing in yourself, even when it was so hard, has played for you. And so I'd love you to talk about how did you find that in you? Where did it come from that you could believe in yourself so much to manifest that into your life? I think it happens over time in different ways too, because for so many years, I let people treat me so poorly in relationships. And so I don't necessarily think I just was born with this or I'm just always confident, but a couple of things happened. Like the more research I did about what I was aiming to do and the more people I talked to who are already there, the place I wanted to be, the more I realized that, wow, like They put me in the ring. I can go toe to toe. I talk about imposter syndrome being kind of a myth, most because it's just like gaslighting a little bit. It's like, no, you actually probably are qualified for that gig because who's to say that the next person was? The person who's already there is. Maybe you're as qualified or even more and you don't even realize it or know it. And so it was that. It's also the more information that I got, the more I kind of got myself prepped, the more confidence I had. And I knew what I was doing was something that I could stand behind and I could justify and that builds you up in a huge way. And then the most important thing I think was just knowing what success for me would mean to other people. Well, I was saying I want to raise capital to invest in other people to go out and do their thing and knowing that their thing would involve employees would involve customers, would involve other people seeing them and being reflected and seeing themselves represented. And all of that just like really made the footsteps fall in front of each other a little bit easier, even though it was not an easy time. I was so inspired by it. And it reminds me of, you know, there was once a story where I was on a canoe trip and I had to carry a canoe for five miles. And I was like, really, it was in my head, not my body that I could do that. And I literally said to myself, I think I can every step of the way, even though under my breath, I was swearing and angry. But the power of I think I can, and I was really reminded of that story when I read that first chapter. I'd love to dig in next a little bit around the story of Jeff. And you talked about this beautiful story of your first yes, when you got a text over Christmas around whether you were available in January. Can you talk about the belief of Jeff in you, that first yes, and so our listeners might sort of understand why they should go out of their way to give that first yes and to keep hustling for it as you did? Yeah, Jeff Perrin, he was like my mentor in the touring world. I used to be a production assistant, a production coordinator, and a road manager on tour with different artists. And I worked my way up for so many years from garage bands to arena level artists. And that first open door to the arena level was Jeff. So Jeff is like, I guess he's in his 60s now. He was probably in his like late 50s when I met him. He is British, but he sounds Australian because he lived in Texas for 30 years. So he's a character. And through different methods that I mentioned in the book, I found my way to a meeting with him. 
And I couldn't read him at all because he spent a lot of time texting because he was working. And I was on, I was like ready to answer his questions. I was ready to be what I needed to be. And I wanted this gig and he was working for a big artist at the time and I wanted the gig and they're crickets for a while. But then I'm back in Texas. I'm with my mom. I'm not feeling great about myself because I'm just past 30 and I'm living with my mom again. And I'm out one day and he sends me a text and he's like, hey, kid, what are you doing in a week? <laughs> it was Christmas time. And he's like, what are you doing next week? And I'm like, uh, nothing. And he's like, you available for this thing? And I said, yes, I am. I didn't say, well, what is it? You know, explain it to me. Like, no, I'm ready for this moment. Of course, when you're in those moments, you don't see it for what it is yet. You can only just appreciate it and try to take it in. But what Jeff did was, what I understand now is that he had already set me up to succeed because he was throwing me right in with the artist, with the artist's management, with all of that right away. And sort of like, you know, sink or swim, it's up to you to do well. But if you do well, you're in. I thought that was really interesting because he could have chosen anybody. It's very competitive. And then on top of that, it's, you know, I took it and ran. And so I actually just heard from him just a couple of days ago because he has the book now. <laughs> I wasn't sure what he would think. And he just wrote me and he's just like, you know, same thing I said in the book. He's just like, yeah, I'm waiting for the made for TV movie. And he didn't have any kids. And it's weird to say, I don't think of him as a father figure, but he was definitely a mentor to me. I was the one who a couple of years after that, he called on to take his place at a major event when he was going to take care of his ailing dad. So of all the people, again, he could have asked to help. He asked me to, and it was just a full circle. Well, his belief in you is clear and he saw the spark and the magic in you. And I think that sometimes that's what it takes. You actually talk about in the book, it leads me to my next point, which is that nobody is self-made. I loved how you said that. I thought it was a very innovative way of making the point that yes, of course, we require agency and hustle and grit and all the things that obviously you have. But this principle of generosity of spirit, which of course, in my own book, go out of your way is like everything I believe in, is sort of how we can lift up people who otherwise would not have a chance. And actually, that this is even more relevant when we're trying to lift up underestimated people. And your story is proof positive of that. And I also loved, Arlen, in your book, how you got super tactical. Like people always are like, well, what am I supposed to do? And you actually give really tangible examples. Can you give our listeners one idea of like what we can do, like Jeff did with you, to go out of our way to really lift up underestimated people? And let me be clear here that Jeff wasn't doing like a Make-A-Wish Foundation thing with me. He was getting value. So it's thinking about it that way, like not necessarily how can I go in and help someone only one-sided, but like how can I, with whatever privilege I have, be the strike point for someone, like the inflection point for someone? It's a beautiful way of describing it, actually. I'm going to underscore that. It's a really important point you're making that not everybody always hears or understands, that it's that strike point is so critical, but it's not charity. This is like earned opportunities. Yeah, exactly. And again, like the same way Jeff did with me, I did have to do the majority of the work. He wasn't going to do it for me. The person that you're giving the first yes to, hopefully there's an inclination on your behalf that you believe that they will take it and do something with it. And I'm doing everything I can on the other side of that and talking to entrepreneurs about being ready for that moment. So if you can be someone's first yes, you have the power to not only do what Jeff did, but to do what Susan Kimberlin did when she gave me the first money to invest in my very first investment. And I've raised millions since then. I've generated millions since then, but I will always talk about Susan Kimberlin. 
I will always talk about her $25,000. One of the greatest lessons that I've learned about resiliency in my own life, and certainly draw inspiration from Arlen's story, is that we can actually build resiliency like a muscle. There are days where coping with pain, loss, trauma might feel completely insurmountable. The adversity is just too great. It's like falling down into a hole of swamp water. But sometimes when we practice resiliency, when we keep going despite getting 99 no's like Arlen did, when we keep getting through the hour after hour when we have a sick child in the hospital or try to move through relentless grief, what we see is that with each hour that passes and every time we dig a little deeper and find a little bit more strength or bring a little hope to the moment, what we're able to do is develop a sense of pride. And that pride of our ability to overcome the pain, to take that next step forward and develop and strengthen that resiliency muscle. And certainly I've drawn on that in an enormous way, using that philosophy as I've been sort of moving through some pretty significant grief as a result of COVID, interrupting the operations of a business I spent three and a half years building with my bare hands. Every single day when the pain felt overwhelming, when the grief felt overwhelming, I had to have a conversation with myself about Jody. I appreciate that you're sad and it's hard and you're in pain. You can have space for that. And you still have to move through your day and take steps to move forward. You have to create something new like your podcast. You have to take care of your daughter and keep going. And every day I felt prouder and prouder of myself as I did. And what happens as a result of that, it's not that the grief or the pain or the adversity goes away. It just gets a little bit easier in my view to endure when you can bring sort of this ability to cope and then develop a sense of pride in doing so. So I encourage all of you to just keep going. I'd love to ask how you maintain your grace. You know, I've met you in person several times. You're calm, at least on the outside, calm under pressure. You have massive crowds of people around you. You patiently wait. You speak with them. You have tremendous humility. How have you navigated both the challenges that you've overcome and risen to, but also sort of the quick scale to stardom like has an impact as well, right? It is hard to be in that in demand. And I know that it's a very privileged place to be, but at the same time, it has its impacts. How have you navigated sort of all those difficult moments with so much grace? What are some of the ways that you get yourself through that and even practices or rituals around self-care, which I know you value so much? I'm 39 and I was sleeping on the floor of an airport at 34 up until almost 35. Like 90% of my life or whatever the math is of my life was not this. (laughs) So I've just had so much time of understanding what it feels like to not have. And a friend of mine who I've known since I was 15, she once told me I tend to be polarizing no matter what industry I'm in. I just tend to be polarizing. I didn't understand what that was. People will hate me 
or they'll be overly enjoyed. So she said that because she's had so much time to know me, she said that most people can't believe that I'm just being genuine. It helped me a little bit because I'm super transparent. Like I don't put on airs because I'm not a great actor. I'm just going to react and it's not going to always be great. You know, it's going to be sometimes embarrassing or I'm going to say the wrong thing, but it's just me. And I also feel a great amount of gratitude to anyone who gets something from me, like who is receiving whatever, you know, that I'm putting out. I just have this like overwhelming gratitude for that over and over again. And it never gets old. It's super inspiring to hear you say that because there's a lot of people who wouldn't know that, right? Watching from the outside to know inside of your soul and your heart, it's nourishing for you to be able to have that kind of impact on people that you inspire. It's really beautiful. And I'm super grateful that you shared that. Yeah, I don't think there's any other way for it to be. I can't imagine it being any other way. I'll share with you, for me, spending all this time during the pandemic at home, healing, resting, thinking, having to reimagine has really impacted actually what I value and starting to think about how I want to emerge as a leader, mom, human, daughter, friend, all the things. I'd love to ask you a little bit about whether this time at home has impacted your North Stars or shifted anything in you in terms of how you want to emerge? I think I had been thinking this way for quite a long time. Every year for the past four years, I have tried to take two weeks off. And in the last couple of years, I've tried to take a full sabbatical without a time and I haven't been able to do it. And this forced thing of like changing how life is lived, <laughs> you know, it's completely changed where I think that has told me that I absolutely need to do the things that I'm drawn to rather than questioning it over and over again. And you really only have this time. And no matter what you believe about the afterlife or anything like that, in this body and in this life, you only have this time. And so I think this last three months or so, two and a half months have really clarified for me that I will only kind of walk towards the things that will nourish me, including if I need to take a step back for any given amount of time to just have that moment for me. Because, you know, we talked about this earlier. I went from just having nothing really when it comes to material things to being able to start my business the next day. Like it was overnight after 10 years, right? I had no time in between. I haven't had therapy, but I haven't had anything. And I think I need that time coming up soon to really do that. And I've given myself full permission now because this proves you just never know. You just never know. I love that. It's so helpful to hear that and inspiring. I think for listeners to give ourselves permission to be in our consciousness and to be really mindful and intentional in terms of how we come out. I'd love to ask you, have there been any new habits or rituals that you've developed, like things that you do every day that you're finding grounding during this time? No, nothing new, just like reinforced where I make sure that I have a cutoff time at work. And they have these robes that are not for after you shower. They're just robes to lounge around in, like your Blanche Devereaux. So I, what I do is I wear the robe on Saturdays, like I own the place. And then I put on shorts and I just lounge around and I drive my wife crazy because I take the rope, you know, like the little thing. And I'll untie it and tie it and I'll be like, yeah, so I'll leave the room and I'll go on the veranda or the, the lanai, as it were, on Blanche Devereaux. And I'll go out there and just lounge and pretend that I'm at the beach. And so that to me is like, that's self-care all day long. 
That's amazing. I have to get the robe and then we'll have to do an Instagram live to just demonstrate to the community what the robes look like in our matching robes. I'm going to hit you with four quick questions before you jump. Mindful of time. So I have community members asked me some questions for you. What is your favorite restaurant anywhere in the world? It's a restaurant called Mother Mesquite that does not exist anymore in Dallas, Texas. That reminds me of my youth and has the best homemade tortilla chips in the world. Mm, delicious. Thank you for sharing that. What is your favorite city in the world, Arlen? I don't actually have one, to be quite honest. It's hard for me to pin down a city. I guess you also get to see lots of different cities. So much a citizen of the world that I just, one place doesn't really do it for me. I do love though, and this is going to sound very she-she, but I do love Laguna Beach now that I've been able to go there. That's where we take our vacations. We take like a two-day vacation and it's just all beach. And so if I were to have a home, I would love it to be there. You're now making me think about going to Laguna Beach when this pandemic is over. So what is your most ideal Saturday night? A new Saturday Night Live with a lot of Kate McKinnon and a lot of the newer female cast. And maybe someone has found some secret recipes from Mother Mesquite so they can help bring back to life. And they brought them to me. Or I have something to eat and I'm with my wife, Anna, and I'm not worried about anything. I love that. And here's our last question. What is a book that has deeply influenced you and your spirituality or consciousness or evolution of self in your life? Not so much spirituality because I don't really relate to that, but just sense of self, Oprah Winfrey's What I Know for Sure or What I Know or something to that effect. It's the kind of book where you can read it over different years of your life and it grows with you. And it's been so helpful to me. And it's a newer read. It's not only the last couple of years that I've read it, but it's just so helpful. That's amazing. And what I know for sure is I love talking to you and I'm so grateful that you and I got a chance to connect today. I'm super excited about the messages, so many powerful messages that your book shares and for your message to scale around the world. And so Arlen, thank you so much for making the time to be with me. You've been absolutely generous of spirit since the first moment I met you. And I look forward to continuing to move the dial together. And I'm just so excited, honestly, for you and all that is going to continue to evolve for you out of your authenticity and sharing of your story and heart so generously with the world. Thank you so much. I feel the exact same way about you. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Arlen. Sharing Arlen's story as the launch to Joyful Sundays, my first podcast for me is about some hope. Arlen Hamilton had her dream to enable underrepresented historically and marginalized founders, including black founders, to be able to access capital to scale and grow their businesses because they have tons to contribute to society, solve big problems, and because it's good business and she's been sharing her perspective for years. And I believe she's absolutely right. It is about damn time that we are funding and giving equitable opportunities to all founders, including black founders. And we have to do a lot more to enable equitable opportunities to access meaningful capital. And it's just not been enough and it's never been enough. And this is what Arlen's been saying for years. For me, my heart lies in profiling the credible stories of Black founders 
as well as acting and literally moving the dial and going out of our way to enable capital for growth, as well as access to customers and networks and meaningful mentoring, like not just like a little coffee here and there, like meaningful support and experience sharing and brainstorming in community to enable and fuel the success of Black founders. It is more important now than ever. And while there are literally hundreds of things I could and should and would like to do, I would love to put my heart and energy into doing that as a step towards having a meaningful impact, what should be a forever marathon, not a sprint or a moment in time. We'll hear a little bit about the initiative that I'm going to be involved with in the coming weeks, working with some incredible community partners and leaders who've been at this a while and who can bring uh, their lived experience to the table. I'm launching Joyful Sundays with a heavy heart, given what's been happening in the world. And because I am a person who tries hard to live with lemonade always and to teach that to my daughter, that I do have hope that this moment in time will be different than the past, that it is waking people up, people like me, many other leaders who come from privilege, who, you know, are on our journeys and want to wake up and do more and even take a standing up to anti-Black racism much more seriously as a result of the incredible movement and moment in time that has happened in the last few weeks. In a way, it's been difficult to conceptualize putting out my podcast that's focused on creating joy. On the other hand, I've felt that we need something to inspire and we need some hope and joy in this world at this moment. And I'm optimistic and excited that the guests that I'll have on the show will be able to inspire as well as through some really authentic conversations on these topics will help the community find a path forward. Thank you for listening to Joyful Sundays, the podcast where I have truly inspiring conversations about how to become your best self. If you like this episode, support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating, and a comment. I'm your host, Jody Kovitz. See you next time on Joyful Sundays.